Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a gentleman who has been in the multi-family space for darn near two decades. Maybe it has been two decades. He is uh, hails out of the great uh, metro of Boston, Mass. Does things in the Northeast. Very interested to hear about that market. Very successful guy. Uh, he is the principal at Arrowhead Properties. He is David Lamatina. David, welcome to street smart success. Thank you, Roger. Thank you for inviting me on. Appreciate it. You got it. So David, tell me this. What's the uh, David Lamatina's background story pre-real estate? Sure. So I personally got started in this business uh, at the young age of 23. I was probably a year out of college and thought I would be involved in the family business, which was the restaurant business at the time. And I quickly realized uh, it was not for me. And at the suggestion of a family cousin who was a real estate broker at the time, uh, he encouraged me to buy a small multifamily and kind of piqued my interest. And I started looking into it and, and I thought, wow, this, this is really cool. This is something that you know I, I think I might want to do. And before I even made my first purchase, I read everything I could get my hands on. I remember spending days back when we actually had Barnes & Noble, if you remember that. Um, I used to go in there all the time, every weekend, and I'd just I'd grab real estate books off the shelf and I'd just read them and, and just educate myself, really just to you know get my mind geared up for for getting into into the into the industry. So um, we set out, we we looked around and and you know looked at some different properties, and in two thousand four, I bought my my first property. I was probably uh, twenty four at the time, so it took maybe about a year. Uh, it was a small multi right in my backyard. Um, I put a little money down and um, bought the asset and I turned it into a five family. I saw some value right off the bat uh, with this property. They had a built sort of an addition in-law off the back. It was your standard sort of triple decker with you know, the balconies in the front and whatnot. And um, they had built an in-law off the back and um, there was a hallway leading from the front unit to the back of the in-law. Which was connected, and I thought, wow, we could we could separate these, and I can turn this big in-law, which was basically just like a big bedroom had its own bathroom. I said we can turn this into like a studio apartment, and so we built a little kitchenette, kind of carved it out, and I turned it into a nice little five-family, and um, you know that's where I sort of learned the bones of the business. Um, I did everything myself, taught myself everything from the management. Uh, of the business and, and leasing to the accounting to maintenance. I mean, I, I you know I figured out how to change toilets and swap faucets out, and I paint my own apartments and things like that. And you know, I didn't have enough money to really pay contractors uh, at the time, so it was a great learning experience, and it, and it really served me well. So I did that for a few years while I was still sort of tinkering around in the family business, not really sure of. Uh, what I wanted to do exactly, and you know, owning one little property wasn't going to sustain me. Obviously, um, so in 2008, I decided to get my real estate license, and I joined a local uh, brokerage firm uh, right in Boston, specializing in the sale of multifamily properties. 
Um, I learned a lot being with that firm. Um, I learned the ins and outs of the business. I learned both the buy side, the sell side. I interacted with a lot of, a lot of buyers and sellers. And um, some of those buyers actually became um, investors with us later on. So that was a great experience. Um, it did lead me into getting into acquisitions and um, syndications full-time in 2009. Um, we started with a small purchase in the same city that I bought the, uh, that little four-family in. This was actually right around the corner. Nice little 12-unit brick garden-style building um, that I bought in 2009 and um, started with just uh, friends and family-type money and continued to grow the business. Uh, and expand our network in, uh, of investors beyond the, the friends and, and family scope. Um, started to take in a lot of other high net worth individuals. We took, uh, got some institutional investors as well. And they uh, partnered with us on, on various deals uh, over the last several, several years. So that's kind of the background on me. Just uh, you know, from that point in probably you know 2009, really, um, really kicked it off. And you know, it's, it's been a slow growth. Um, sort of organic in a way, but uh, you know we've been been quite successful in you know where we're at right now. So, so my family started Boston Chowder Company. Uh, my dad started that back in the '80s, and he was a restaurant guy, and he uh, developed this uh, clam chowder recipe and entered it into um, the Chowder Fest in Boston, and he, they won it like three times, and um, they got kind of a name for themselves. So he kind of. From that, he developed a uh, sort of a chain of, of stores called, um, well, it's now called Boston Chowder Company. It was initially called Kitchens of the Bay State, then it changed to Bay State Chowder Company, and then morphed into Boston Chowder Company. So my father started that. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago, but my brother, my older brother and my younger sister um, had taken over and, and they run that, that side of the business. So um, I've been out of it for, for a number of years, but um, I, I love food. I love the food. Just working with food, we, you know, I come from a family of, of chefs and that's become more of a hobby of mine. And sometimes my, my kids, you know, they love my cooking and they'll be like, Dad, why don't you open a restaurant? And I'm like, yeah, I like to cook and that's where it ends. It's, you know, it's fun to cook with the kids, but that's the business side of it is, is a whole different ballgame. Restaurants are hard business. Restaurant business. It, it is. I, I know really. you're no longer in the business, but just out of curiosity, how many Boston chowder companies are there? How many locations? A lot of the malls around here, they kind of crash and burn and, and so that didn't, didn't quite work out. But um, my brother actually started, you know, a couple other concepts aside from Boston Child Company that, that do quite well. So got it. When you, when you go back to like 04 and you bought your first five and, and you'd use the term we, and I think also in 09 is who is the we in, in Arrowhead? Is it, is it the, is it the, proverbial we it's it's you or was it yeah so i drove the bus basically so in 2004 i i borrowed funds from my father to buy this property and i convinced him to loan me the money and um i told him it would be a good idea and uh, i kind of wanted to get into it and he's like you know what i i trust you i believe in you so we did and it worked out paid back and then in 2009 when i saw this opportunity to buy this 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 uh, first real sort of asset, um, it was off market as well. I convinced him to come in as, as sort of an investor. Um, and so I do owe a lot to my father, I'd have to say, because um, you know he, he did believe in me at the time and he, he trusted me and, and he knew that I, I'd serve him well. And he really didn't know anything about real estate. He was a restaurant guy. 
Um, so I really had to convince them. I had to convince them it was a good idea. Um, even though I didn't really know as too much of what I was doing, but I knew I was going to work my ass off, um, which I did. And it worked out, worked out super well for him. He made a lot of money. I made him a lot of money. Um, but, you know, he helped me out too. And, and you know, in the, in the beginning, who do we usually go to in, in those situations? We go to people we know, we go to family, we go to close friends. So um, it worked out and that really helped me to sort of morph and sort of expand and then started taking in some other sort of friends, family members. And like I said, really just grew it organically. And then I took on a, a partner, uh, Jay Goldberg, um, who's been with me for, God, I think over 10 years now. He started out as, as an investor. Um, I knew his family very well. I knew his father very well. His father was actually sort of a mentor to me back in, in the early days. His family is um, sort of a legacy type family, generational family of, of real estate up on the North Shore of Boston. Um, they've done extremely well for themselves. So sort of putting that all into the pot, it really um, all worked towards a common goal and really worked towards our success. And you know, having, having my partner involved as initially as an investor and then sort of come on as more of a more of a partner in the company and helping to raise capital and bringing in other investors and things like that. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how that's uh, changed over, over the years and, and how we've gotten to where we are. There's something I really love. Well, I love a lot about your story. The fact that your, your dad was your first investor is, is, is touching. And I, I'm not, I mean that genuinely and uh, they put, put that faith in you and I'm sorry that he passed away. The other thing that's super cool about your story is that you were literally, you know, figured out how to fix toilets. And um, that's impressive because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know how to do anything like that. Um, did, you, did you find that you were actually uh, good at it, it doing the handyman stuff or? Not as good as I want it to be. It's, it's more like I got it done type of situation. And um, I just, you know, like everything else, I just kind of figured it out. Uh, on my own, but I think that's where you know I probably separate myself from myself from a lot of other guys. Where I see some of these other firms that have grown so quickly, right? But a lot of these guys, they, they either come from like a Wall Street background, a private equity background, right? Or they worked for a big national firm for a number of years and then sort of branched out, went on their own. I didn't really have that advantage or luxury. Um, I really just had to learn everything on my own um, through either just talking to people having a mentor, getting advice, reading books. So, you know, it's my situation is a little bit different. And that's, you know, how I, I probably separate myself from a lot of the other other guys out there. We see those, those other guys are most of the guys that are on this podcast. So that that's a little bit of reference for you of why I told you I appreciate you've done it your way yep. and very, very selfishly and self-centeredly. I really love it because that's how I built my business, which was the advertising business. Because for the first several <laughs> years, I couldn't afford to hire anybody. It was just me. And I did every, right. every, everything on my own, including the, the accounting uh, and, and I'm somebody that account, flunked accounting one twice. And so, but since I didn't have anybody, <laughs> yeah. to, you know, so I made that's So that's why I could very, very much identify with what you're doing and, and, and appreciate it. So that's great. Yeah. So, 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 you know, so many of these guys, you know, that I've interviewed and women, you know, they're doing multifamily in Dallas and Atlanta and Nashville and, you know, what have you, and, you know, hundreds of units and this kind of thing. Boston yeah. and, and, and um, you know, I, my base is the, is the Bay Area, which is probably more like Boston than, than, um, okay. than not in terms of like the inventory, especially San Francisco. 
And so I yep. guess what characterizes, you know, and I was on, I was on your, obviously, you know, looked at your profile and, and kind of did, did a little bit of poking around. Um, it seems like most of the stuff you do is, you know, in your, your own backyard, um, maybe New Hampshire. Yep. And what is the, so what is the general um, description of the inventory that you buy, like in terms of units, vintage, submarkets, and all that kind of stuff? Sure. So to be honest, we've had the most success and probably the, the most type of asset that we've bought and been successful with is the uh, sort of the vintage garden style type property. Okay. Properties that were built in say the 60s, 70s, you know, those typically require the most sort of maintenance, upkeep, deferred maintenance, but they're also the ones that we found have been mismanaged, have been owned by sort of a mom and pop type owner, uh, family ownership, number of years. Uh, really in need of professional management. You know, units are tired. They really haven't put money back into the property. And we see a lot of value there. And yes, they are a lot of work, but the reward on the back end is, is, it has been huge. So we've just been really good at going in and, you know, putting in some professional management, efficiently managing the property, getting rents up, but at the same time, putting a lot of money back into the properties. So we're not just going in there increasing rents. We're really improving the quality of the property. And, and, and over the years, we've gotten a lot of comments and compliments from our residents that have thanked us for coming in and cleaning the place up because the prior landlord, in some cases, you know, was was a real, for lack of a better term, real slumlord. Um, we've actually had instances where you know the board of health would call us and thank us. The fire department, police would would thank us for coming in and you know putting putting the money into the property, turning it around and, and sort of making their lives easier. So we like to say we improve the, the communities also um, that that the properties are in. Um, obviously, we're in it to, to make a profit, but I think I think it's a win-win for everybody. Um, and I we found that a lot of the residents, you know, don't mind the increase in rent because they know what they're getting in return. And they're just happy to have somebody that, that comes in and, and, and cares about the property. Um, like we do. So that's pretty much what we've we've done. We don't really focus on like new construction. We don't do any development. Um, it's been all of uh, that sort of, you know, vintage garden style. Um, we focus in, in secondary and tertiary markets outside of Boston. Um, you know, we play where, where, where we know and um, that's where we've done well. Um, how much you know, so you, you really do fix up these units and improve them. Um, inevitably, you know, each building is different uh, that you acquire. But I, I guess generally, how much do you put in, you know, to these to these buildings per door, or however you want to define that? So sure. So I, I like to say, I mean, we, in some ways, I mean, we almost over-improve a little bit. But I, I've just always said the mindset, we kind of go the extra mile. We, we, we do spend probably a little bit more money. Um, we do not do Mickey Mouse type renovations. Um, we go in and, and we'll put the good quality, uh, you know, luxury vinyl plank flooring, you know, good stainless steel appliances, um, you know, quartz or granite countertops, recessed lighting, nice plumbing fi fixtures, um, tile backsplashes, tile tub surrounds. Um, I mean, we make them really nice. I mean, we make them almost, you know, condo quality. Um, and it helps when people come in and they see that. And, you know, it's in a lot of cases nicer than most of the competition. And so we have no issues uh, when it comes to renting our units. So how much, um, uh, so what do you, ballpark, what do you put into the units? How much money? Right now, I mean, everything's increased, as you know. Um, labor's increased. 
construction materials have increased. It's, you know, it's been sort of an all-time high. But I'd say on average, um, if we're going sort of soup to nuts, we're probably spending easily between 15 to 20K. Okay. So, so you... And that's, that's, that's like a full gut. I mean, we're ripping the kitchens out. You know, a lot of times with this stuff that has to be repaired behind the wall that you don't see, uh, you know, a stack pipe, drain pipe, uh, mold issue type type situation. Um, so then that involves a little bit of money, but um, I'd say that's probably the average. Got it. And then how many units on average per building? Per building? Um, so right now we're focusing on... Uh, the smallest would be like a 50 unit building up to, I, I mean, I don't, it's really not a, like a, like a maximum, but I, I'd say our sweet spots probably between 50 and 200. So our last two deals that we bought, um, both in Worcester, Mass, uh, was 120 unit complex and a 92 unit complex. Okay. And then, so here, here's what I've heard about class C stuff is that you would, which is so interesting that that's kind of your sweet spot is that there's just you've got decades depending on the building but you know you're talking about mismanagement so this is a you know prior management right that you've got potentially you've got decades of potentially bad maintenance guys working on systems one after another after another and you don't know and the plumbing in particular can just be the ultimate gotcha and that these things just there's no end to the amount of money that this these things will suck you dry. Inevitably, you figured that stuff out because this is what mm-hmm. you do. But speak to that. I and, and 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 I guess maybe I shouldn't try to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine it's just you know underwriting it correctly, right? So that you've got you've just yeah. got your your downside protected. But how, tell, tell me what's that? And tell me how you. Yeah, no, you just you hit the nail on the head right there. I mean, like I said, we've bought so many of these buildings that after a while they all look the same. I mean, they're all built in the same era, so we we know them so well. We know what they're going to need, and we just go in assuming that the plumbing is going to suck. <laughs> I mean, we just know the plumbing is going to be in rough shape. You know, and most of the times, nine out of ten times, it is. And you know, we build that in, and we expect it, and we take care of it as it comes up. You know, we've we've replaced many boilers, we've worked on many HVAC systems, um, we've replaced many corroded and cracked pipes and uh, big cast iron pipes stacks behind the wall. I mean, we've we've done all of that, so it's it's uh, it's nothing new to us, and nothing that we're we're afraid of. Got it. In in what kind of um, competition have you had, and maybe it's changed in the last year, maybe it hasn't on the acquisition side. So are you up? How many people are you? You know, trying to elbow out to get these deals. Yeah. So it's interesting, and it it does depend on the deal. But um, so the the product that we typically go after, you'll have you'll have probably more of a mix of uh, private buyers. Um, a lot of the institutions um, do not look at the older vintage type stuff. Um, a lot of a lot of firms don't even look at anything built before like 1990, and in some cases that's even too old, um, which is fine. Um, so a lot of times we're going up against the, the the private buyer or even another mom and pop type, um, which it can work to our advantage uh, because we are pretty financially sound. We have great banking relationships, um, so. That does probably give us a little bit of an edge, but even then, there's still a lot of money right now. I'd say that I'd say that's the biggest challenge right now is getting deals to pencil. 
um, that makes sense. Um, sellers are really not motivated to sell, especially the ones that are you know locked into to a low rate. There's just really no motivation to sell anything right now. Um, so the few deals that we've looked at in this year has been pretty painful. Um, just it, it's been it's been tough making it work with the debt in relation to the pricing that the seller is is looking for. So as far as competition, I'll tell you there was a deal that we just looked at not that long ago. It's already closed. It was a portfolio of brick buildings right outside of Boston. Uh, really good market. Um, we don't own anything in this market yet, but it's just north of the city. Uh, really good market. It was a portfolio of three properties. I believe it was ninety-two units. Long-time family trust ownership type situation, really like right up our alley and in, in, in really our MO. So we definitely went and looked at it and we made a bid on it. And I think we were, I think our max bid was like 20, 22 million and it ended up selling for over 25. So weren't really close. Um, and as far as a competition on that, I believe that the broker said they had 40 something tours. Oh, wow. And two dozen bids. So, and that just is a, a test to the lack of supply um, right now. And you have buyers that still want to buy, they have capital. So as far as any pain or distress, if, I don't know if you were going to get into that, but you know, we really haven't seen any of that yet. And I don't know if we're going to see a lot of distress here. Typically, the Northeast has really been fundamentally sound, um, even back to the crash of 2008, which I went through. Uh, it was a great time to buy back then. If I could, if I could go back in time, I would buy everything, everything I could get my hands on from like that 2008 through even like 2015, 16, 17, even you know, because what we we peaked in 2021. But I, I I'd buy everything I get my hands on if I could go back in time. And you literally could have done nothing and just sat on it. You could have made millions. Um, anyway, not to get off the point, <laughs> but um. <laughs> um so yeah, so th there's still a lot of capital out there, lack of supply, and the distress we really haven't seen yet. And, and you know, as, as far as other parts of the country where you saw it, I was getting to 2008, you know, down in the you know, southeast and Arizona and Vegas and, and places like that that got hit hard. Um, the Northeast really didn't um, see that pain as much. So I mean, I, I hope there's some some great opportunities coming up, and I I think. Um, once things sort of stabilize and normalize a little bit, I think next year we'll start to see some opportunities. I don't know, you know, if they're, if they're going to be like, you know, home run type, but I guess we'll see. A lot of people not, this isn't necessarily in your market. It's not in your market, but this common like refrain of people that I've spoken to and other podcasts I listen to is a lot of people start in, you know, C-class stuff, 60s, 70s vintage. Mm -hmm. And this is really probably more in the last five years. But as cap rates have compressed, they're like, well, you know, why take on that element of risk and the brain damage if the, if, with the cap rate compression, if I can get, you know, a similar cap rate on B-class or even A-class properties. So is that just not, is that dynamic really not applied to the Northeast? And, you know, is that something that you've ever considered or just no? Yeah. I mean, the cap rates on like a class C versus like even a B or an A have always been quite, quite the spread. You know, even when things were peaking, I mean, like a, like a class A type asset around Boston um, was, would probably trade at, in some instances, a sub four cap. Right. 
Um, and a class C at the time would be, you know, probably like a five cap, you know, and, and it depends on, depends on the, the location of it, but between a five, five and a half. And, and right now, class C really, really should be in that six, six and a half. And we've seen the, the newer product is, is definitely not a sub four cap anymore. That's probably closer to like a, High four, maybe just sub five. I've I've seen some recent closings where it was like a you know just just under a five cap on like a a newer newer build type property. Uh, on on the acquisition side, you said that's kind of the biggest challenge is you know making these deals pencil. Sellers don't need to sell, so they're they're not moved by the higher interest rates to lower the prices because they just don't they don't need they don't need to be. So right. I guess my question is. Prior to, you know, the last uh, 12, 18 months prior to that, what did the deals look like in terms of, you know, cash on cash? And, you know, what, was it easy to make deals pencil or was it super, super, nothing, I guess, is ever easy? Was it, was it super competitive then too? I mean, how, how easy is it to be able to get deals prior yeah, to the last 18 months? It's always been competitive. Okay. In our market, it's always been competitive. And that's just because of the high barriers to entry here. It is just always a lack of supply, right? There's not a lot of property and inventory and they just, they don't trade that often. And there's, and there's a lot of capital. There's even a lot, there's a lot of, we've seen a lot more institutional, national players come in. So now instead of just your sort of local and regional buyers, you, you get, you get groups from California, uh, Texas, wherever, Florida buying here. So New York even. So, so, you know, that's, that sort of adds to the mix and adds to the, to the competition level. But. Back back when you know things were things were were going well and you know the prices were were a lot different capital rates were lower and things like that, it was easier to to pencil because we could get a rate in the low threes and we could get a rate. I mean, some of our deals were like you know low threes, and you put in the, your your projections and your your you know your rent projections and your rent increases and things like that. And, you know, it made sense. You could do the deal. I mean, we look at deals now, we're like, yeah, we could do that deal at that price that he's asking right now. If, if the rate was at three and a quarter, but not when it's seven and a quarter, it doesn't make sense right now. So there has to be a, there has to be a pricing adjustment. Um, and then, the, and then the banks, especially local and regional banks have gotten really conservative. They don't want to lend much money on these deals. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we used to pencil in. 75, even 80% um, a lot of times, like easily. Now your 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 same bank is is doing maybe 60% LTV. So your your cash out of pocket has increased substantially. And that always hurts the return. I mean, anytime you're you're putting out more money on day one, uh, your initial return is gonna be kind of crappy. And so that's been a challenge. Um, but you know, sellers were much more willing to sell, you know, back in 2021. Uh, in prior years, uh, because buyers were willing to pay more, right? So projections were more aggressive. So sellers would say, "Okay, I, I wasn't really interested in selling, but you want to, you know, you want to throw that number at me, sure, you know." And that and that was happening a lot. So it's, it's very different right now. What um, I guess over the last okay pre interest rates having gone way north, what was your deal velocity like? a uh, number of deals per year and what has it been in the last year or so? So we've always averaged only like one or two deals a year, right? We, and I always say, you know, we don't do a lot of deals, but we like to do the right deal. So we're not going to go out there and just gobble up everything. 
Um, we're very patient. We're very conservative. And we tell our investors, yeah, you're not going to see a ton of deal flow from us. But when you do see a deal, you know it's going to be a good one. Okay. That's, that's pretty much what, we, what we've told our investor community. And they're fine with it, you know. But yeah, I'd say, you know, an average probably went to two, two, two deals a year. And this year has been um, obviously off pace for, for everybody, not just us. You know, we've looked at a few like that one I was telling you about. And, you know, the challenge is, again, lack of supply and, uh, you know, the debt market being where it is in pricing. So what, what kind of debt do you guys get typically? Right. So the deals we did last year, um, again, we were, I think, 65% LTV on both of those. One was with a local bank um, right in the city that we that we bought the asset in. So they were very familiar with the asset. They really wanted to lend on it. Um, and the second one we actually did with um, Santander Bank. So uh, we got great debt on both of those deals. Um, we got you know, interest only period, I believe three years and I believe four years on the other one. Um, long, you know, long-term fixed rate debt, I think five years. And I think the second one was seven years. So I would say it was a conservative debt model on both of those, um, which the investors appreciated considering the market at the time. But that's the other thing when you talk about debt and, and conservative debt. You know, a lot of these guys are getting into sort of riskier debt models with, um, you know, floating rates and, and bridge loans and, and interest rate caps that had to be purchased and, and all this other stuff. And those are probably the most at risk. And thankfully, we never, we've never done one of those. We always believe in, in just more conservative debt, more long-term fixed rate debt. And that is what we have across all of our portfolio right now. Hmm. Smart man. You said secondary tertiary markets. Is that, David, because the kind of inventory that you guys acquired, that's where that kind of inventory is? Or what's the, what drives uh, that as opposed to the primary markets? I mean, I'd say it just started back, you know, with, with my very first purchase being the tertiary market. You know, back then, it, you know, going back to 2004, I didn't even know what the hell a tertiary market was. You know, so I, I, it wasn't real. I wasn't really identifying, you know, the type of market. I just saw something that, that was affordable. It was in my backyard, you know, purchased it. And then we kind of just grew from there. So I, I, I always kind of believed in having these assets in my backyard because we're, we're, of the mentality of having you know boots on the ground, and that's how we operate. Um, we like to to see, feel, and touch our our assets. So, like I said, it's probably grown from that that first purchase. But at the same time, that's that's you know we do see a lot of value in the secondary and tertiary markets, and you know we do see a lot of that sort of mismanaged type type stuff that we know we can get in there and do our thing, and and you know really uh, make a big difference. Do you guys do stuff uh, outside of Boston? Yeah, I mean, so we're focused in, it's called the Merrimack Valley. Okay, that's where our office is located, which is 30 minutes north of Boston, encompasses a, you know, probably a couple dozen different towns and cities. That's like our sweet spot. Broke into Worcester, which is considered Metro West. That's like northwest of Boston. So Worcester is probably, you know, about an hour away from us. So that's, so we kind of, you know, that was like our first sort of branching out into, into another market. We really like Worcester. It's the second largest city in New England. So we see a lot of good things happening there. And uh, we've been in Southern New Hampshire. We did sell the asset that we had there. I really do like Southern New Hampshire, mainly because a lot of people are, are, are moving up there. They're getting out of Massachusetts. They're going over the border. The cost of living is cheaper. There's no income tax in New Hampshire. Big, big thing there. Uh, no sales tax either. And uh, the, the, the landlord-tenant laws are much more friendlier to landlords 
especially right now. Good to know. How many approximately units are in your portfolio at this point? So between myself and my partner, we have close to a thousand units under management um, with a market value probably just north of 200 million. You guys are feet on the ground. You guys stick to yeah. what you know. You're, you're not trying to set the world on fire and you're just like, uh, yeah, I, man, I, I love what you guys do. How, how do you guys, are you guys uh, vertically integrated in terms of management? How do you? We are, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I think we have a, you know, an advantage over some other firms is we are vertically integrated. And, and again, that's, that's how I started out, you know, uh, really in property management. I always tell, tell people, we're almost like a property management firm first, you know, and then we started getting into sort of the, you know, the capital raising, private equity syndication type stuff. But, you know, property management, um, well, it's probably the toughest part of the business. Probably the, the thing I like the least about it. Um, just we've seen a lot of nasty things over the years. It's not very glamorous, uh, but it, it is it is a necessary evil. Um, but we we are property managers first. We've done that well. Uh, but we see everything through right from acquisition, due diligence, uh, property management, asset management, construction oversight, right through disposition. So we have a handle on the entire process. So when you say construction oversight, are you third partying out to other GCs then? And did you yes. just say you just you just have a tight yeah. control we, on it? Yeah, exactly. We have a very tight control on it. We work with the same vendors and GCs that we've worked with, um, electricians, plumbers, contractors, and the like. Um, over, over a number of years, they do great work for us, and uh, we oversee them. We oversee the process. We oversee. And you know pricing and controls and things like that, but you know I've toyed around with you know starting like a construction uh, sort of division or branch of the company. Um, I've gone back and forth whether it would be a real advantage or just more of a headache and another thing to manage. You know, I haven't ruled it out, but what we've been doing is 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 worked out uh, you know for us so far. Hmm. Across your portfolio, what what's your occupancy at this point? Percent occupancy. Oh, it's great. It's great. We're probably 97, 98%. Wow. Yeah. What are rents uh, compared to a year ago or a couple of years ago? They go up every year, every year. I mean, we're, we're, you know, it depends on, on the units. Some, some of the units, when we get them there, especially on an acquisition there, they're really like below market. I'm talking like $500, $600 even at times. Um, but even on our existing stuff, we're getting anywhere from $50, $100, $150 bumps in rent. So they, they just keep going up. How, how long do you like to keep properties? So we, when we model our, our deals, we typically look at a five-year hold. And, and right now, um, no, I think with the market, it's sort of getting stretched a little bit. But we typically do a five-year type projection. Um, but over the years, I mean, we've sold stuff in three years, two years, one deal I think was 18 months. So there's really no like uh, fixed hold period, but of course when we we do our model, we love to look at at least a five year five year deal, and that's how we base our debt. I mean, we're always getting at least a five year debt term, sometimes seven year, even a ten year. If it's like a Fannie Mae agency type loan, we'll get a ten year or even twelve year. To back up and and uh, to something we talked about at the beginning, your partner where you brought on Jay, and you said he does capital raise stuff. I guess, uh, what else does he do? Like, how do you define roles? So he, he leaves the data to Arrowpoint and myself and my team. Um, he does have his own portfolio and stuff that he does in the North Shore and his family. 
um, assets as well that he oversees. So, you know, we talk almost every day, every other day, and, you know, it depends on the situation, but he'll, he'll lend advice and he'll help out with, with certain things. And, you know, I think when, one, uh, one thing he did for us was go to a, uh, a, a zoning board hearing, uh, back in August for something we were looking to do. In addition, we were looking to put on a building that, uh, we had a big fire in, uh, it was, that's a whole other story. But he was uh, successful in getting them to uh, grant approval for another couple of units that we added to uh, to the site. So um, he's he's really strong in the finance and, and you know debt banking relationships. I'd say uh, that's where his his uh, contribution comes in most. Got it. What would you say is the worst deal you did, and what did you learn from it? <laughs> To be honest with you, we really haven't had a bad deal. We haven't had a deal where it just went south, where, you know, investors lost money. It just, that hasn't happened. I mean, if I had to pick like a worse deal, I'd have to just look at the deal and say, okay, like what was, you know, what was the lowest producing return? Um, I guess that's how we'd have to look at it. But, you know, every deal we've done has been a good deal. And, you know, I'd probably do that deal again. Um, so it's hard to just say, you know, oh yeah, that deal off the top of my head, it was a horrible deal. You know, this X, Y, and Z happened. It was a nightmare. We got out of it. We kind of lost some money, but you know, it is what it is type of thing. Um, fortunately that's, that's never happened. You know, I get that you're so methodical and you don't, I, I get the feeling, yeah, I, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I get the feeling your ego is in check. So you don't get, get yourself out in front of your skis. You don't take down things you can't. You know you can't manage and 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 um yeah so it's exactly yeah, I, I I I totally get that. My biggest fear would be letting our investors down. Yeah, yeah, it's probably my biggest fear. What I'd be afraid of most is is actually having a bad deal or losing losing an investor's money. Yeah, that that would kill me. So I mean, there's been times where we've looked at deals and and we were so conservative that we talked ourselves out of doing the deal. And then later on, we regret it. Like, why the hell did we not go forward with that deal? It turned out to be a great deal if someone else bought it and sold it and made like a ton of money. Um, that's happened before. From firsthand experience, unfortunately, it's a lot harder. It hurts a lot more to lose money than to pass up on deals that made money. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, what, Although sometimes it always doesn't feel that no, way. No, I but. understand. I understand. Uh, where do you see yourself or where, where do you want to be five years from now? So, I mean, just better at what we're doing, just, just bigger and better, you know, just kind of keep, keep motoring along and and growing the company. I'd I'd really like to expand. I'd like to expand my team, um, even on like an executive level. Um, I'd like to be able to hire some good people down the road, like, uh, you know, head of investor relations type, type person, CFO, that, that, that type. I mean, like I said, I'm still doing a lot. Uh, myself, we're just not quite there yet, but hopefully in five years, uh, we will be. Um, and I'd like to also, in five years, uh, be able to ex- sort of expand beyond our current market and sort of get out of our comfort zone a little bit. Um, and that's been been a challenge for us as far as, you know, we've talked about, we've talked about other markets, right? Getting out of New England and maybe looking at, you know, the East Coast and Atlantic markets and, and you know, the Carolinas and things like that. Um, it's... It's not that we don't want to. It's just the, the the sort of the fear getting over that hump of, you know, we don't know that market. We've gotten so accustomed to being in our own market. We can look at a deal and don't have to do a lot of research because we know the market so well, the property so well. 
Um, and it's just, it's easy for us. But if we were going to go into a new market where we've never been, never played before, um, it's a whole new ball game. And sort of that, that, that fear comes in of, you know, what if it doesn't work out? What if we, what if it, it's a failure? What if we, what if we lose money and investors hate us and things like that? So just trying to get over that hump. But I, I hopefully at five years, we'll, we'll, you know, have to have done that. Um, and I don't know if I told you, we, we started a fund, a first fund um, last year or so. Uh, it's called the Arrow Point Multifamily Fund One, and that fund is focusing on you know continued value add uh, type assets that have worked well for us, and uh, you know sweet spot of like again fifty to two hundred units. Um, it was a small fund to start, uh, geared towards our you know friends, family, existing investor community. Um, we started it at uh, probably the worst time um, when the debt markets went crazy. This was back in like spring, early summer of last year. Um, we kind of kicked it off. And uh, so things were kind of going crazy and investors were getting very apprehensive. Um, they really weren't, you know, they were pulling back on, on commitments and investments. Um, but having said that and having, you know, even with all that going on, we were still able to raise a, a good chunk of money. I mean, we, we, we wanted to do a $20 million fund to start. And uh, as of today, I think we're just over $11 million And we've done two deals already. The ones I mentioned in uh, Worcester did those last year. And uh, we hope to do probably in total six to eight deals for this fund. And then hopefully in about a year, we can start fund two. Um, and that'll be a, probably a little bit bigger um, and maybe probably geared towards some, some institutional type, type players as well. So, I mean, we just, we started the fund and the people, a lot of our investors, why are you guys doing a fund? You know, I, I like investing in the one-off deals and I like looking at one deal and, and doing that. Um, you know, we wanted to give um, more access to our investors uh, to, to deals. So a lot of times we were getting oversubscribed on deals pretty quickly. And a lot of investors just, you know, weren't able to get into it and, and you know, hey, I, what happened? I didn't, you know, I, I guess I was too late. And that 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 was happening. So we said, you know what? Let's let's do a fund. That way, we can sort of have a capital raising period for like a year. We can get more people involved. And um, the other thing is is risk mitigation. So instead of and we tell this to to our investors, instead of putting all sort of all your eggs into one basket and investing in in one deal, if that deal doesn't work out and uh, doesn't doesn't turn out well, then you're sort of out that investment. But if you're in the fund, right, your 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 capital is spread out across various assets. So if you have say eight deals in the fund and say one or two don't do well, they don't get hurt as badly. So it's just a it's just a risk mitigation factor. Um and that's probably the probably the biggest reason why we we started the fund. And I'm pretty happy with it so far. And I'm, I am looking forward to doing fund number two. So has there, has there been a lot to learn about like the administrative and compliance and the regulatory aspects? Oh, of, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is different. It is different. There's a lot to learn for sure. You know, there's a lot more um, involved with uh, just some of the, the the calculations and, you know, the, the management fees and, and, and things like that are, are a little bit different. You have subsequent closings and you'll have investors or LPs that come in to the fund later on that have to be treated differently. So it's definitely more, uh, more accounting and more compliance involved. But you know what? It's, it's, a, it's a learning curve. It's a learning experience. And um, I'm happy to take on new things. And you know what? If it didn't work out and it was horrible, we'd say, you know what? 
funds aren't for us. We're not going to do it again. We don't like it. We'll just stick to the sort of the one-off type deals. But so far, I like it. And um, like I said, I think I think um, we'd, we'd do fun too. And, and do it do it better. And, you know, after knowing what we know now. Do you guys raise money along the way, call capital when you make acquisitions or is it all the money up front? Yeah, so it's only on, a, on an acquisition basis. So depending on what we need for, for equity, say we look at a deal and we're like, okay, we need, you know, $8 million um, total in for this deal for, for closing costs, for, for, you know, down payment, for, for CapEx and the like. Um, and then we, we, you know, we call the capital based on that. So it's a percentage of, of the, uh, the total commitments to the fund. So, and that's the other advantage too, to investors is it's like, hey, you can commit, right? You can commit a couple hundred thousand, let's say, and you don't have to write a check for, for the 200,000 today. You know, we'll call it an increment. So it might be like 15 grand here, 25 grand there. So that was attractive to a lot of, uh, a lot of the investors that had never been in, in or invested in a fund before. In the uh, fund one, how many investors are in it so far? Right now, she's off the top of my head, ballpark. We probably have, I would say, Probably 25. Okay. So some people cut some pretty decent sized checks if it's 11 million bucks. Yeah. We have some guys that did a, did a half a million commitment, which, you know, pretty impressive for, for an individual. Um, we've had others at, uh, at the 300 mark. Um, a lot of guys did the, uh, the 250K minimum. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the other thing too is, is probably the next time around, we'll probably lower the minimum, um, on that just because I think when people, you know, they kind of get, Apprehensive, like oh, two hundred fifty thousand. I don't know. That's that's kind of a lot. We try to almost like, hey, you don't, you know, you don't have to write a check for two fifty today. Uh, but still, I think uh, the next time around, we'll probably lower the minimum just to get more people involved. Yeah, well, I would think newer people in particular, maybe some of your yeah. older, you know, longer standing relationships that you know you've built that trust and you know, and right, exactly. Well, listen, yeah. uh, what a great conversation from my perspective. David, how, how does somebody find out more about Arrowhead and David LaMatina, et cetera? Just go to our website, arrowpointproperties.com. Got it. That's probably the best thing. Got it. Well, listen, I, I cannot tell you uh, how much I appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's a Friday. Have a fantastic weekend. And hopefully we can uh, circle back and do this uh, again in me a too. year. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. We'll All see. right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 